Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. If you want to know anything worth knowing about angling trends or the recent evolution of fishing across each of its disciplines, to my mind, the best person to ask is one of the big players in the retail fishing tackle trade. And in that regard, few are better placed than Jerry Foote, in whose company I am at the moment, and who for many years has owned and operated the tackle shop, mail order and worldwide online business Jerry's of Morecambe. Anglers' buying habits reflect interest shifts across the various disciplines, while new products, as they come and go, can tell as much about how angling itself is changing. Talking to anglers on the ground, depending on who and how many people you speak to, plus of course what you actually ask them, can give a skewed interpretation. Where their money actually goes gives a much bigger and therefore more accurate picture. But before we start picking through the various statistics trying to identify trends, let's first look at the tackle trade itself and specifically at your own experience. Now a very obvious observation is that by listening to your accent, you're not a Lancashire lad. So what's the story behind that? Well obviously I started life in London by the accent, and uh, was a London boy through and through. Met my wife, girlfriend at the time, and her parents split and her mother came to Walker with her future stepfather-in-law. And ever since I've been... I don't know. It's difficult to look back now so far. As a teenager, I always want to be self-employed. And my future stepfather-in-law, as he became, started his own business. And he asked me, would I like to come in a partnership with him in business? And I thought, well, I really like the idea of that. I'm in charge of my own destiny. This is an opportunity in life. I'll do it. So I moved to Morecambe. We started a, a haulage business. And I could bore you to death with a million haulage, haulage stories where was some real fun and games happened. But anyway, cut a long story short, I wouldn't say we fell out, but the business wasn't that successful when I decided I'd had enough. But the main reason for me for leave was I hurt my back, lifting furniture. So spent a period of time in hospital, traction and bits and pieces. Came out and realised that I was never going to be able to lift things again. I also had a complication called ankylosing spondylitis, which is a sort of fusion of the bones in the back and... In fact, when I got married, I got married in a corset because <laughs> to try and keep me back straight. So I didn't know quite what I was going to do. And a reasonably long story short, my mother-in-law, who owned a sports shop at the time, asked me, she said, well, you know, what are you going to do now? I said, I really don't know. I said, I, I really have no idea. So she said, well, the thing you do, and she saw the world in a different light to many people I've met. She said, what you do, she said, the thing you're best at is fishing. You're mad keen on it. You go two, three, four times a week in all sorts of weather. You seem to catch fish. So you seem to know what you're talking about. Why don't you think about opening a tackle shop? Because she was in a sports shop, she'd obviously seen things from a retail perspective. I thought, well, how the hell do I do that? So I looked around Morecambe at some little shops and bits and pieces and thought, well, yeah, there are a few shops available, but how do I get going? Anyway... Bless her cotton socks, her and her uh, new husband decided that they would talk to a company they knew with their sports shop called Wizard Edwards that sold fishing tackle. And they persuaded the company, if they still guarantors, to uh, run me a credit line for a thousand quid's worth of fishing tackle. So I rented a shop and uh, ordered a thousand quid's worth of fishing tackle, which I thought was going to come in, you know, 15 lorries and 
Mind you, a, th- a thousand quid to a fishing tackle 35 years ago was a lot more fishing tackle than it is now. But even so, it arrived in seven boxes, of which we was a bit aghast because we tried to fill this relatively small shop with seven boxes of fishing tackle, all from one company. I opened up brollies and did all sorts of things. But cut a long story short, I discovered that I had the ability to sell or blag my way through retail, as you might want to call it. And we went from day to day selling more and more stuff, and it blossomed. We did okay. And that's how I basically got involved in fishing tackle. It's gone on from then, then, 35 years ago to now, which is a little bit different now than it was then. But you haven't just come into the tackle trade. As I said in my intro, you've grabbed a very big slice of it by identifying potential growth areas, such as mail order and internet sales, before many of your competitors jumped onto the same bandwagon. Good question. And I have to say that for me, it was one of those um, little moments in life where you have those little feelings or, or little... I always relate them back to cartoons, when you see like the cartoon of this little uh, box appears above Popeye or whatever it happens to be, with a question in it. It has a brainwave for a moment. I was there one morning, and my morning started every single morning. We're taking the lugworm out of the fridge, opening up the packets, taking out the dead ones, putting in the fresh ones, wrapping up the packets. And we had a, a reasonably steady business in Morecambe that was steadily growing. But, I mean, steadily, Morecambe's a very small town with only a moderate population. It was never going to go anywhere, really, other than beyond what it was at. It might have grown a little bit. This little question said to me, well, Jerry, you're earning whatever you're earning a week. It was only a modest wage. In fact, talking about that, going back a little bit, a lot of people, when you start in business, need to take this on board, that when we first started our first shop, for the first two years, I never took a penny in wages. We lived on my wife's wages, which were pretty mediocre at the time, just to invest everything we did make back into the business, which is, sounds a throwaway phrase at the minute, but it was a very, very, very difficult time to put bread on the table. Anyhow, without any sympathy for me, this little moment came along and it said, well, Jerry, you're earning a living, you're just about holding your head above water, and you're taking away your job at the end of every week, but do you want to do this for the rest of your life? And there was a sort of ding moment in my life when I thought, well, how the hell do I make my world, my audience that I'm selling to bigger? And I thought, mm, it's got to be mail order. We've got to increase the people that we service. So I thought, well, we'll, we'll have to talk to the different magazines and see if we can talk about the cost of advertising. So anyway, um, a young lady from Sea Angle, which was EMAP at the time, uh, with a womanly world, she managed to sell me half a page in Sea Angle. And I also had another one of these revelation moments where she had been in the magazine. She said, oh, here we are, you, you want to try and be, be the first in the magazine. And I thought, well, why would I want to be first in the magazine? She said, well, everybody wants to be first so that you're the first advertiser. We can do you this page. It's behind, I don't know, it was a big player at the time, maybe Jim Johnson or someone like that. There were some big players around at the time. So, well, how do I thought to get in front of them? And then, as she passed me the magazine, if you give any man a magazine, any right-handed man, most men pick up the magazine and open it to the back page like they're going to read the sport. Right-handed men open magazines with their left hand. So I said, well, can I ask you a question? Who has the inside back cover? Because the outside back cover was quite a prestigious thing owned by uh, 
different tackle firms that would advertise on it, you know, Abu's and the pens of this world. Couldn't afford that. So she said, well, what do we inside that cover? That's the worst page in the magazine. I thought, is it now? And I saw a bargaining chance there. I thought, well, if it's the worst page, it'll be the cheapest. So we negotiated half a page inside that cover in black and white, mono as it was at the time, called at the time, because it's all I could afford. Lo and behold, spent ages and ages trying to get the right thing in there, give it a go. And uh, we then proceeded quite, if you think about it now, quite funnily, to serve in the shop and answer the phone with the customers that came through the door, which was amusing as the phone was quite busy, because we didn't have a lot of staff at the time. The difficult bit became, after two weeks, because it was a monthly magazine, of course, Sea Angler, as it was at the time, would ring you up and say, would you want to go on the next issue? So um, I had to make a decision whether I could afford to go into the next one. So it looked like it was going okay. So we took a risk. And we just about covered the cost of the advertising. It made a very, very minuscule amount of money before we took the next one. And it just grew from there. We then went to a full page and then colour and so on. And it just grew. And that's how I got involved in the mail order side of things. And of course, you're hitting a much bigger audience, which mean, uh, you know, you're potentially to sell a, a lot more tackle, which for us has happened. That's how I got to in the mail order. It's just grown from there, really. And as a result, does the extra purchasing power that comes from volume sales then allow you to bring the selling prices down? Without a doubt. You do need to do that. But this uh, Dreamsville that many anglers seem to live thinking that the bigger players are making more and more money, when realistically, because you're not the biggest player in the box, what tends to happen, like much in competition, it finds its own level. Most businesses need X amount of profit to run their operation and the bigger their operation is the more profit they need to do it more staff more packing more pages the whole thing is uh, it's self-driven really that but you cannot work on very small there's not enough people in fishing tackle to turn over tremendous amounts more than your opposition because your opposition is trying to do exactly the same as you are so what i'm saying is that the actual profit needed is driven almost by your competitors not by what you can buy because there is a limit in what you can buy and there is a limit what you can afford and there's always someone bigger than you can buy better than you or or can buy more than you what i'm trying to say is tackle does have a bottom price that's, that manufacturers will sell to dealers like myself although there's a few different deals for special offers but generally the price is driven by the marketplace we'd all like to make more money but as i said to you before phil i have this phrase that says you need to be as cheap as your uh, closest competitor but generally speaking your closest competitor is going out of business so it needs running at a loss so you've got to be <laughs> careful what you do during your time in the trade and i'm thinking here of big purchase items such as rods and reels has tackle got better in terms of overall quality has it also become cheaper in relative terms there's no question about that china was you know obviously the catalyst to make that happen or maybe korea before that if you went back say 30 years Tackle that's even around today, things like uh, Abu 7000s, the reels, the, the quality reels from Abu, they would represent maybe two weeks' wages for somebody at a time. Now you can buy them for 80 and 90 pound quality reels. So the price is, is considerably less when the buying power for the customer 
who's obviously had wage increases, there's more. And I think that uh, people's buying power is much stronger now for the consumer it's ever been. And the choice is fantastic. And the price of goods has definitely got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Although I do think we've reached a stage where that's beginning to change as uh, the Chinese was once upon a time were willing to build it for almost whatever you wanted it to be. Now it's much more competitive in China. There is a limit. I think the days of the very, very cheap Chinese goods are over because even we used to say, well, I don't know how we can sell a wheelbarrow for 1999. How do they make it, put it on a boat, send it all over here? We make our profit out of it. China makes their profit out of it. The manufacturer makes their profit out of it and we sell it for 1999. I don't know. There were some things that were getting very, very silly. Those days have gone, um, which I'm really quite pleased about because what I think we were doing is we were saying, how cheap can you make this thing? And there came a point when it was so cheap, it just fell to bits. And we have to be careful that, as we are going to see at the minute, we're going to see some very big players that have never been in the fish and tackle industry come into the fish and tackle industry in the next few years that will try to do that. But I think there will be a quality issue with many of these things because how cheap you can do it is not necessarily a good thing for, well, when a reel is a good example, it? it might look like a BMW on the outside, but if it's got a larder inside, it's no good, is it? So um, be careful how cheap you want things to be before they fall to bits. Cheap isn't always the best, in my view, anyway. To one extent, then, has the global market made all of this possible, in the sense that as companies such as Penn and Pure Tackle grow, they can invest more into development and quality, knowing they have the increased potential of a worldwide market from which to recover their investment? That's a good question, and I think it would require quite a complex answer to that. Pure Fish is a good example. Once upon a time, we had Abu that stood on its own, Mitchell that stood on its own, Penn that stood on its own, Shakespeare that stood on its own. Now, all of those brands and a few others have now got under the umbrella of pure fishing. Are completely driven differently. They're driven by shareholders who want to see a return on the business. And grouped together, I personally don't think they're as competitive, as innovative, and are covering the market in the same way that the individual companies were. In fact, I think fishing tackle has seen a distinct loss in some of the uh, ranges that were available, all in the pursuit of trying to keep the company lean and mean and making profit. Although I'm not denying that's they've got to be there, they've got to make profit. But I think now things are being thinned down to to an extent where the actual ranges of the fishing tackle are worse. Some of these companies are losing the ability to see investing in quality advice and quality anglers help them develop and promote the tackle is at its lowest ever, I think, ever. Well, you yourself, Phil, have been involved in a few different developments over the years, I would think. I know there's a few different angling names that have disappeared. There's not as many bigger names in angling now as there was because the money's just not there for them to invest. The companies are not willing to take on that advice. And I think angling tackle as a whole will suffer and has suffered because of their loss of not being here in the pursuit of profit. And are these companies now so large and powerful that they can simply turn around and say, well, take it or leave it? Yeah, I think they are. That's a very good uh, way of putting it. They want to fill their marketplace, but they want to make sure, like all businesses, they're doing it for... They don't become silly fools, but they become so busy, so much tackle, they don't make any money. 
that was becoming the case of many of the brands had too much stuff. So they've taken it from one extreme to the other. We've now got very thinned down companies in pursuit of profit, very much reduced actual items of tackle. And I think that if some of those companies were to be honest, they've shrunk it too much. I think it'll come back the other way a bit. They, they will need eventually to, to realise they need to employ anglers and people that know what they're talking about in the trade to give the angler what he wants, some quality tackle. In terms of picking out the evolutionary trends within angling as reflected in tackle buying trends over the years, I had intended to split this next question up under the three subheadings of game, course and sea. Then I realised that you don't actually deal in game fishing tackle. So what's the thinking there? Uh, it's a very simple thing really. As I say, the tackle available has grown to such an extent that each individual area, each individual discipline of fishing tackle now, it's very complex. And I find, that I still see this in tackle shops today, that the shops that try to do it all become jack-of-all-trades, master of none. It's very, very difficult to be at the leading edge of all the different disciplines of a sport with the best anglers working for you to give the best advice, the best range of tackle, the area of store to show it in uh, obviously because you're, you're limited by the size of the store in case of growing the store doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make any more money it just means you have a bigger store with bigger overheads and that can be a suicide choice for some retailers it's a complex sport now and we try to say well we're near the coast we've been looked upon on the years as what i call a wet address next to the sea and myself and one or two of the other anglers in the shop are very keen sea anglers so we do that very well. We do a bit in the carp fishing. We've got a couple of very good carp anglers in the shop with a tremendous fishing records that can give great advice. Caught some fantastic fish. So we go down the carp road. We know what we're talking about with that. But the game fishing, we are surrounded by two or three very big game shops who do it very, very well, who generally just all they do too. So they specialise in what they're doing and we specialise in what we're doing. And we try to do what we do to the best of our ability. And I think that's better for the shop, better for the customer. So that's what we do. Another two, which is the more important to the business in terms of counter sales, mail order than internet, the carp fishing or the sea? Well, there's no question that if you looked at the whole market, carp without doubt is the biggest money spinner or turnover of money. Whether it actually makes more money is a debatable fact because most carp anglers buy things in threes, three rods and three reels as an example. So... There's some big money turnover in the carp. But uh, for us, it's still the seaside of the market is the bit where we specialise in. We're good at it. We know what we're doing in it. And we have developed many parts of it. Just recently, the lure fishing side of our business, lure fishing in this country is taking off fantastically. And anglers are experiencing the fun of using some of the high-class modern materials that can do so many things these days that older-fashioned materials couldn't do. And the fun of having one rod and one bag and a few lures in your pocket is proven to be quite addictive to many sea anglers who have cast out a six ounce leather on a great big 13, 14 foot rod to catch a few small fish. They're not as mobile. It's not as much fun. Well, the lure fishing gives them a different avenue to go down. So uh, that's a growing part of our sport, which I'm, I'm personally enjoying myself too. So yeah, um, seaside of ours is definitely the strongest. Uh, there's some big players in the carp market, and most of the big carp shops are based in the southeast corner of England, where they've got the best fishing anyway, and short access to the continent, where lots of lads are going these days, 
carp fishing with some fantastic fishing, so they're bound to be the strongest. Can we now start to look at some of your observations with regard to changes and trends, starting with sea fishing? What, if any, specific patterns have you picked up on there? Well, like I just talked about just now, then the, the lure fishing side of things has become a very strong part of what we do. Uh, very attractive. I mean, you can go to your garage, you pick up a small lure rod, seven, eight, nine foot long rod, few plugs and what have you. No smelly bait if you don't want. It's a bit akin to uh, maybe some of the fly fishing thing, you know, where you go to your garage, you pick up your flour and your fire and a few flies, no smelly bait, nothing to wash down when you come home, and go fishing, which is very attractive to many people. So that's a definite trend that's happening at the minute. Lighter and lighter rods, braid being a big factor in what's going on nowadays in the fishing world. So those trends are happening now. And as materials improve, I think that will only get thinner, lighter, more pleasant, multi-section rods for the future, I think. That will be the next biggest step. And shore angling trends? I suppose the most noticeable will have been and still is the desire for ever greater casting distance, though in practice that isn't always necessary. Well, I think there's always been an obsession with distance casting, right back to the days of Leslie Moncrief when he first cast, you know, whatever, the first 200 yards. And when uh, we locally had a, a Peter Bagnall, which was a big caster locally. There's always been a big, oh, an interest in that. In fact, I think those guys are almost more obsessed of how far they can cast a lead than they are in the, in the fishing side of it. I don't think even really and truly fishing comes into it. I'm not saying that they're not anglers. As a good example, we ship some stuff out to Australia, believe it or not, and we've got a couple of customers that live well, right in the heartland of Australia, miles from the coast, who in their Australian surf casters or distance casting website, they would go out in their backyard, cast it, measure it, and then post it on the website of no interest in fishing whatsoever. So, you know, they are part and parcel of the trade, but I don't think they're an enormous part of it, but they certainly drive along the technology to give us the longest casting rods that we can achieve with whatever current technology is available. As you've said, you're not into game fishing. But what about fly fishing at sea? It comes and goes, that Phil. It seems to be a bit of a fad. I think it started really with pollock, people catching pollock off a shore, which are relatively easy to catch on a fly. And now we've got such a resurgence in bass fishing. Bass fishing is supposed to be under attack by gillnetters and everything else around the country, which is fair common, I'm sure it's going on, and I can't say that I uh, agree with it. I'd like to see it stop. The more fish there is in the sea, the better it is for me. But uh, we all want our fish on the table, so without commercial fishing, well, that wouldn't happen. There seems to be more bass now than there's ever been. I was only telling this story, our local postman, it's a guy called Alan Ward, he's been coming to me since he was a, a little boy, and he now became my local postman. He caught a eight and a half pound bass off the side at the battery top in Morecambe on a, a particularly windy day and I remember it making front page in the visitor and if I remember rightly it was one of the biggest bass caught off the prom this will now be it's got to be 25 years ago but nowadays eight and a half pound bass is, is almost commonplace we, we weigh them regularly for people uh, in fact you know Morecambe's seen bass in excess of 14 pounds every year for the past six or seven years that we've either weighed or known about. So that was a thing that was unheard of in the past. And many, many, many more small fish. So although the gill netting and everything's going on, there does seem to be an awful lot of bass, which I never quite understood really, but um, long might continue. Can we now start to look at innovations down at the business end, 
Things like quick release trace clips, or maybe switching heavy mono for wire. There's not a week goes past where someone doesn't bring out a new rotten bottom or a new casting clip, and there are some fantastic things about these days. There's some brilliant innovative minds in the tackle trade. I mean, Gemini's a leader in developing um, bits and pieces for end tackle. God rest his soul, Tony Gitty's no longer with us, but it's still there, still. Well, there's many, many people that are developing new things. Clips, I mean, how many different types of clips can there be these days? There's hundreds. You've just got to work out which is the one that suits you the best, but the choice, like many other things in England, there's too much choice. Tons and tons of choice. And what are your thoughts on the growth in the use of braided lines? Is it a fad or a bandwagon effect? Or do they make a difference all of the time? Without a doubt, I'm a total braid convert now. I took a long time to get my head around using braid. Braid on a multiplier can be an absolute nightmare because, I mean, if it bursts, then that's the end of your fishing session. You can't pick it out. So it's seen a rise in many, many types of fixed balls because it's much easier to use on a fixed ball. The benefits of using it are quite easy, really. It's much thinner line. The line's maybe a quarter of a diameter of mono. No stretch, so you can feel every bite. I must admit, I did have some, and I still do have some reservations in using it with big fish. In my angling career, I've been lucky enough to visit different parts of the world, and I once tried to use braid on a boat in Florida, and the enormous American captain threatened to throw me off the boat if I was to use uh, that rubbish or words to that effect on this boat. He said, we don't use that. He said, it's too direct for big fish. All we do is pull you over the side. But interestingly, I've only, I've only just come back a few weeks ago from a fishing trip across there and lots and lots and lots of American anglers now are now using braids because they're all beginning to across the world they're beginning to understand the benefits of being in touch with your fish so direct to it it does have its downsides the difficult bit with braid is knowing when to use it and when not to use it but it will be with us now for a long period of time I'm sure that the diameter of it the strength of it the castability of it the smoothness of it and the roundness of it will only improve as manufacturers extruders a line and whatever across the globe get better and better at what they do i think braids with us for a long time now and personally for shore fishing i'm a total convert now you cast if you're lucky maybe 200 yards 150 200 yards but you're in touch with what's going on you can see every bite if you're in a match situation using a, a two or a three hook scratching rig you can almost count the whiting on which you can never do in mono you can't i don't believe you're in touch with mono at all but there are benefits and disadvantages. You've just got to know when to and when not to use it. And what about your thoughts on monofilament? Well, again, I think it's one of the most difficult things for many anglers to understand because most people just think monofill is monofill, but it, it certainly isn't. Some floats, some sinks, some's a constant diameter, some isn't. The different knots you've got to use with different types of mono. It's a complex subject. You need to ask a reputable retailer with, as we like to say, anglers serving anglers, for advice when you buy mono. Many people just walk into the shop, pick it up, go for the cheapest or the dearest or whatever, but they don't really think about you know, whether it floats, whether it's suitable for what they want it to do, whether it's soft, whether it's for using over gravel. They need to take advice when they buy it so they can buy the mono to suit the angling they're doing, but it's certainly got a place without a doubt, especially for big fish fishing, without any question. There are colour choices to be made too, and also, do we need to be using expensive fluorocarbon? Well, again, it's a complex subject. Okay, I'll, I'll give you my fluorocarbon bit first. I spoke with a friend and, and a very, very good angler, Roy Marlow, who's done an awful lot of tarpa fishing and stuff in different areas of the world. Excellent angler. 
who would quite happily pay £50 for a small spool of fluorocarbon, using it in crystal clear waters for tuna and tarpon and different types of blue water species, where it was absolutely critical that the fish couldn't see the bait. And I think that's a good guide for using clear lines. If you're fishing for a predator fish that's got fantastic vision, if it can't see the line, it has to be an advantage. You have to also bear in mind with fluorocarbon, it is very brittle. You have to tie the right knots and use it where it wants to be used. But the, the point of using fluorocarbon in Morecambe Bay is a good example, which is sandy, the fish can't see it. I just don't see the point whatsoever. So just normal mono is fine and, and colour. There's a good argument to say that bright lines are good to attract fish to your bait. They can see it in the water. Fish like flounders and plaice, I'm sure, that are attracted by different colours. So having a red snood length or a yellow snood length can actually be a, an advantage. You've got to make your own mind up about that. But I, I basically think if, you, if your guide is, if it's clear water and you're fishing for fish with brilliant eyesight, you can tell they've got brilliant eyesight by looking at their eyes because if they're bigger, they've got brilliant eyesight. So, uh, you know, if you're fishing for that sort of fish, freshwater-wise, pike fishing, that sort of stuff, clear fluorocarbon's got some good benefits. On the other hand, as regards as your main reel line, well, if your reel line's pink, yellow, blue or clear... Only you can see that. So if, you, if there's an advantage in having a yellow line so you can see where it is in the water against the skyline, that's only got to be a plus for you. So I'm a great fan of that. The bit that affects the fish is obviously the snood length, the bit between the bottom of the swivel and the hook. That is the only bit the fish is concerned about. You can't see the rest. So you um, choose that to suit uh, the quarry that you're going after. Now you will have seen this much more than me, but from time to time over the years we get bombarded by hype regarding some chemically irresistible compound or other being offered as a guaranteed no-fail bait additive. But none it seems, and certainly at sea, ever appears to stand the test of time. Well I think you can see all fresh water, but I think the same thing applies to all of these. I've no doubt that some of them are brilliant. And I've read some of the, uh, the different pheromone input that gives off certain things to, to fish. They put it in varying ground baits nowadays for coarse fishing. You can dip your crabs in things and there's a, there's a whole multitude of things that I've seen over the last 30 odd years come and go. And how it generally seems to work for the people that are selling it is use this particular additive on your bait. So what the angler generally does is he's persuaded by the advertising jug it might be very, very good stuff he's buying. Takes it with him and he decides to use it. But he generally speaking uses it when the fishing is no good. That's really the worst time to use some sort of additive. What you want to do is you want to use it when the fish is great. Because if you use the best bait in the world when there's no fish, you can't catch fish. So if you all of a sudden decide to run and dip that best bait in the world in your additive, cast it in the water where there's no fish, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be no fish. You want to do it the other way around, when there is plenty of fish, and see if it catches you more fish. So generally speaking, people buy it, go expected to give them fantastic results in times when there is no fish. It's not like that. So there are good ones. There are some that are just a farce. You've got to make your own mind up. But reading the blurb, which is normally pretty impressive with most of these things, but they come and go. I've seen lots of them over, in, over the past 30-odd years come and go. They never seem to stay around for a long period of time. But I've no doubt they'll be with us for a long, long time to come as people dream up different ways of selling additives to anglers. Some really work. I've seen some really strange ones work. I'm sure maybe you have with things like WD-40. Who would believe that a fish would eat a bait that sprayed WD-40 penetrating oil on your bait? But it works in some situations. So 
don't be put off by it. It can be very, very good. But it's the same thing again. You've got to do it on your own experiences. But good or bad, in marketing terms, these things consistently fail. So why is that? Are they not worth the money, or do sea anglers simply not relate to them? I think all that's right. The reason that they fail is that they're used, as I said before, at times when people think it's going to make the fishing great. So the angler uses it, squirts it on his boat, chucks it in, doesn't catch anything, puts it in the garage and forgets about it. Whereas he might want to try it when the fishing is good, and then he might actually continue to buy it. But because of that unsurety, I think there's a reason why they start off with a great woof where people buy them and they read the advertising blurb, sell thousands of them, but they soon teeter off very, very quickly. Because people don't do it when the fishing is good. If they were to be persuaded, only use it when the fishing is good. To improve your catch, a lot more will be sold. You can't be going fishing when, one, the weather's right and the fish are there. You've got to go when the fish are there. If you go when the fish are not there, no matter who you are, you can't catch them. Clothing has also become a big part of the angling scene these days. People are no longer willing either to put up with discomfort or simply make do. What they want is guaranteed, totally weatherproof jackets, salopettes and footwear, with many companies now getting in on the act. So presumably it's a highly lucrative side to tackle manufacturing, plus another way of getting the company name out there in the public eye. But how do you, as the retailer, see things? You want me to tell you that retailers make a fantastic margin out of clothing? Well, I'm sure that some of the uh, Marks and Spencers and big clothing retailers of this world make a lot of money out of clothing. From a a fishing retailer's point of view, we don't make as much money out of it as Marks and Spencers do, but we don't buy as much as they do. But you need to take one thing on board with clothing from a retailer's perspective, and you don't need to get your anky out here, but you must remember, if you buy a rod and a reel, it's the rod and the reel of your choice. With the clothing, if you buy the fleece or the pair of trousers that you've seen and you like, whether they be breathable or whatever that to be, the retailer has to stop much, much more of that one product because she has to have an extra small, a small, a medium, a large, an extra large, an extra, extra large, and now kings and giants. So the stocking policy for each bit of clothing is enormous, even though you, you mainly sell large and extra large. God made us all different shapes and sizes. It's an enormous stocking issue for most retailers. So they need more margin. So yes, Phil, you're right in what you're saying. There is generally sort of more margin in clothing, but it's needed because you do throw a lot of it away or sell it off for, for very little at the end because you're, you're always left with a giant and the small. So yes, it is a more profitable thing. Not as profitable as uh, it would be, as you maybe some of the anglers of this world think it is. But it's an important part of what we do and, and it's very, very true. There are times when we sell as much clothing as we do fishing tackle because it's an essential part of what you do. We all need quality clothing when you're fishing. What about flotation suits? In your opinion, do these give anglers who could potentially end up in the water a false sense of security, to the point where, in some people's eyes, there's no longer any need to wear a life jacket? I think this is one of your favourite topics, because I've heard you talk about this before. And I'll tell you the, the story that I tell anybody that's buying a flotation suit, and you have to make your own mind up from this. A flotation suit will keep you afloat. A flotation suit will not save your life if you're unconscious and fall flat on your face in the water. But on the reverse of that, if you went out and bought a life jacket, then also inflate life jacket. One, you've got to make sure that the also inflate will work. I've got to be confident it works and bought a good one. Then, you know, if you was unconscious and fell off the boat and fell in the water, and you happened to, the thing went off and you fell in the water, 
and you was the right way up. Well, you generally have your flotation suit on when it's cold. If you had your life jacket on when it was cold, and you fell in the water, it really isn't the life jacket that's going to save your life. You're going to freeze to death anyway, because it's the cold that will kill you. So I personally think that the flotation suits, the chances of you being unconscious, I would say, are pretty small. The chances of you falling over the boat are much higher. If you fall in the water with a flotation suit on, it will keep you warmer, longer, because that's what they're designed to do. I think the official figures are three to four times longer, warmer in the water than you will be with just a life jacket on. So I think your chances with a flotation suit in the water are much higher to be found and be alive than they are with a life jacket on, depending on what waters you're fishing in. And some of the coastal waters around England are never very warm. And if you're, you know, if you're out in the winter, certainly a flotation suit would suit me far better than a life jacket, personally speaking. But, you know, everyone's got to make their own mind up. But flotation suits, not only do they keep you warm, they keep you dry. And they can save lives, definitely. That's, that's my opinion. Or oh, we're both. Or we're both. You must always remember that I put the life jacket over the flotation suit. Because you don't want it going off under the flotation suit. I've seen one or two people do that before. Back in 1999, I was asked by one of the magazines to pick out what I saw as being the biggest single contribution to sea angling during the 20th century. Quite an easy question for me to answer. In fact, a bit of a no-brainer, really. Without any hesitation whatsoever, I nominated uptide fishing. Not only does it produce more fish in difficult shallow water situations, but it also forced anglers to scale down and enjoy their fishing more, on top of which... It then went on to spawn a whole new era in rod design and manufacturing, with every company worth its salt getting in on the act. So let me now put the same question to you. In your opinion, what has made the biggest contribution to both boat and shore fishing throughout your time in the tackle trade? One of the biggest contributors is sharp hooks. If I went back 30 years, we bought bronzed forged hooks, that we sharpened ourselves with a stone. And I was always very fastidious about carrying a stone and making sure my hook was sharp. Nowadays, we can buy chemically sharpened hooks with a range of different points, which I think are absolutely brilliant. They tend to be thinner, stronger, lighter, in a variety of colours. So I think hooks must be a big part of increasing people's catches, because actually you stick the hook in the fish's mouth, it stays there. Braid, from a boat fishing point of view, has been revolutionary in putting more fish on the boat because you're much more in touch with lighter gear, with the fish. It's much more fun. Gone are the days where people bought enormous 6-0 and 8-0 size reels, put 60-pound line on it, 2.5 pound of lead, and lowered it down 300 feet with an enormous rod. They had no idea where they caught the record caught a big fish half the time. Whereas nowadays, it's much more pleasurable with Braid using much lighter rods, 20-30 rods to fish off Whitby. Who's ever heard of something like 20-30 class rods? Six miles out of Whitby fishing for cod in 300 feet of water. But that's what they're doing now. Much more pleasant for the angler, catching more and more fish. So braid's an enormous part of it. And obviously the improvements in carbon fishing rods. In every two or three years that passes, there seems to be another advance in, in tubular carbon. We're seeing it now with the continental-type Italian-style rods. Being really driven by the lack of fish in some places or the want to have to catch 
smaller and smaller fish with lighter and lighter, thinner and thinner gear that wants to cast a long way. Some of the new Italian style long cast fishing rods are stupendous in what they do. In fact, I had a little door of Blackpool the other night fishing for them hounds and it was remarkable how far you can cast with a fixed ball and braid and how much fun it was playing those fish that you're in touch with on light rods. So I think those four things together must be um, yeah, what will the future bring? Many, many different types of rods, I'm sure. Multi-section rods are going to be a thing for the future. I know that Phil and I have lived through a time where multi-section rods came from Woolworths and there was uh, seven or eight different sections that was jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and that's it, hopeless. And a lot of us still have that feeling where a multi-section rod is no good, but they really are good nowadays and they're getting better all the time. I see the future for beach rods and things yet. Although the technology is not quite there yet, but multi-section rods that you can put in the boot of your car, who the hell wants to put an 8 foot 6 section in your car, making angling more accessible for everybody. You can leave the, the tackle in the boot of your car, so you fancy having a quick couple of hours on the way home, it's there for you. I'd rather have it to go to the garage and get our 8 foot 6 tip and take it with you. So that advancing car was, we'll see more and more multi-section rods, as, it, as in the fly world. You, know, you can't buy a two-section rod now for fly fishing. They're all multi-sections. It does lead itself much easier for fly fishing because they are lighter, thinner rods. But I think that the future for shore anglers, certainly they want multi-section rods. There's still some technological advances to be made there, problems with spigots and things, and problems with making the action quite as nice because it isn't quite as nice as a two-section rod, but certainly they're getting there. Some of them are brilliant. So I'll see that being the future for fishing tackle, definitely. Can we now switch the emphasis to fresh water? It's a similar range of questions and observations to those made earlier. So what, if any, patterns have you picked up on there? Well, quite honestly, fresh water side of things. When I was uh, a teenager and in my early 20s and such, I started life as a course fishing angler and going down the canal catching a few gudgeon, occasional perch, occasional tench, and once in a blue moon you'd catch a carp from some of these different ponds. Nowadays I have this bit of a laugh really when I tell people, that nowadays you could dig a hole in your back garden, fill it full of water, and you go out the next day and there'll be carp in it. They seem to be everywhere. They've been the resurrection of freshwater angling in this country, and I quite honestly think without commercial fisheries around the country nowadays, angling would be on its knees because the fishing was getting difficult to hang on to children to take your kid down the canal expecting to sit there for five hours and catch two gudgeon when he could stay at home and play on his Xbox or whatever it is video game at home uh, I know what my kids would want to do my children certainly would stay at home with the Xbox but take them to a carp fishery where they can sit down put on a few grains of corn or a bit of lunch and a bit of a boilie and catch something that's five or six pounds on a regular basis but pulls the string certainly has generated some great interest in kids coming back to fishing. It has some downsides because it's breeding guys that only want to carp fish who don't learn the skills of angling and I think they can get bored of it very quickly. Catching a 20 pound carp in my youth was uh, a thing that you really only dreamed about but nowadays it's almost commonplace. In fact, a lot of lads won't even tell you they caught a 20 these days. They're not, they're not interested. I had a guy the other day that caught eight and a half pound tench from uh, a water very close to us. I've got one or two friends that are uh, you know, now in the ground who would have cut off their right arm to catch an eight and a half pound tench. 
Uh, the guy that caught it just threw it back in disgust. He didn't want to catch carp. You know, he didn't realise that what a fantastic fish he just caught. They were nuisance fish. So there's some good and bad in that, but it has been the resurrection of freshwater fishing within the country. I'm sure there are many, many salmon anglers, game anglers, who have spent hundreds, thousands of pounds on salmon fishing tackle who go and during the season might catch a salmon or no salmon or just an odd salmon every now and again who have turned himself to carp fishing who think, well, Christ am I, I can catch a lot of reasonable fish here very, very easily have given up game fishing. Long may it continue. I do have a few reservations about the amount of carp in some of these commercial waters. Let's hope we don't see any... uh, diseases coming to be from some of these waters being so stopped that eventually Mother Nature takes hold and says, well, hang on a minute, <laughs> there's too many of these things in this water, we're going to do something about it. So providing the fisheries are managed correctly and hopefully the Environment Agency monitors the quality of the water and what have you, that they can protect the species of fish other than carp that are in the water. What about a switch generally in support from rivers with big bags of smaller silverfish to still waters with individual specimens? As I said before, you know, once upon a time, people were happy to go and sit and catch loads of silverfish and gudgeon and perch and what have you. What do you want to catch? 20 gudgeon or 25 or 6 pound carp is no question that the carp are more fun to catch. So yeah, without a doubt there has been a move away from rivers. I fish a bit around the northwest for barbell and things. And whereas I can remember going to Preston fishing under Halfpenny Bridge and having to queue to get on to fish for the chub in the winter or get a particular peg for barbell fishing, you can go any time now and get a peg. There's nothing like as many people fishing the rivers as there was. So what effect might that potentially be having on traditional match fishing and in particular training anglers well enough for international duties? I'm maybe not the right guy to ask about that. I'm not as versed in that as maybe as I could be. But all I do see is locally we've got more match teams now, I think, than we've ever had. The clubs are not as big, but there tends to be groups of 20 or 30 guys that get together regularly at fish different commercial venues. Who, let's face it, are fun. They uh, catch plenty of fish. Um, you know, £100 these days from these commercial waters is it's a regular event. And you've normally got to be within the 30 or £40 group to get a place in any of these matches. So there, I think there's, there's a lot of match angling going on. Maybe not the days when you might have, um, I don't know, think of a big angling club, Prince Albert, go somewhere where all of their members fish a match where there's hundreds and hundreds of them. But there are, across the country, lots and lots and lots of smaller matches going on on a regular basis. You have a lot, it's been good for angling that. And at the same time, have you also seen a switch in emphasis from natural baits to man-made concoctions? Good question. Yes, without doubt there are, you know, how many boilies are sold nowadays? It's quite interesting, over the last few years... More and more, shall I say, I'm not going to say good anglers. I had a guy the other day who was amazed how many carp he caught on bread. I watched a chap fishing the other day with maggots on a very heavily fished carp water where maggots really weren't the norm anymore. Corn and boilies and luncheon meat were the norm. So the fish were seemed to be more turned on to maggots. So maybe there's a little element that are going back to using natural, what we would call old-fashioned baits because they're not seen by the fish quite so much anymore. But it's definitely so many uh, man-made baits made these days. So many. And again, what about innovations down at the business end of things? 
The changes in the business end is how many different things can we sell the angler? As we spoke about earlier today, I come down into my shop these days and we have basically a specialist angler run each section, each discipline of the shop where carp angler look after the carp section, the course anglers look after the course section, sea angler look after the sea section. As many times I come down now and look at the shop and I think, well, I wonder what the hell that does. And I think I'm a fairly experienced angler, but there's so many new gadgets, all that appear to be good, it's very, very difficult to keep your, your finger on the pulse with them all. But there's no doubt there's many things made to catch anglers rather than fish. That's for you to make your mind up whether you need it or not. There's also been some enforced change too, driven by legislation, such as going lead-free and not being allowed to use live or dead baits imported from other fresh waters to prevent the spread of disease. It depends the view you take. I suppose no lead has got to have a good effect longer. I mean, you know, why would you want to use lead these days? It's just toxic. You can't believe we actually run our water through lead pipes, can you? So I think no lead has got to be good. Personally, I like using it. It was softer, easier to get hold of. But I suppose the long term, if it is having an effect on wildlife, if there is an alternative, why not use it? Although I have to say, I've never seen a swan eating four pound of lead. But the positives from it are the less lead I suppose the better for the environment the better the better for wildlife as regards to pike fishing there's got to be a positive in not moving baits from dubious source to dubious source if you buy some mackerel in Birmingham and drive up to the Lake District uh, or you buy some roach in Birmingham from a tackle shop not saying that tackle shops don't know what they're doing but where did they originate are they diseased are they not and you go and chuck them in some Lake District town are you doing the right thing really the more monitoring of where those fish came from in the first place is maybe what's needed so that they have some sort of a stamp of approval. But I don't know how the Environment Agency would ever do that. It's quite a complex thing to do. But moving different fish from place to place is always a dangerous thing to take disease with you. So there must be some sense in that. I'm not the scientist to tell you what's right or wrong with that, but it does seem to make a lot of logical sense. What do you make of the evolution and expansion within pellets and boilies? Well, pellets are certainly the thing at the moment, aren't they? I can't believe when I look at the pellets we, we sell in our shop. There's so many different sizes of pellets, and then there's expanding pellets and floater pellets and pellets with holes in, pellets with not holes in, pellets that are red, pellets that are green. There's a million different types of pellets. Like you just said, I can't believe it. eventually the fish are going to go hang in a minute. <laughs> I'm sick of these pellets, can we have something else? But we seem to get more and more and more. I don't know, I don't know when that'll stop. It's a trend, Phil, isn't it? It changes. There'll be something else comes out sooner or later that puts pellets to shame. They seem to be good for the fishery that you're actually getting the fish bigger because you're feeding them on a high protein. Just how long the pellet syndrome will last, I don't know really. It's difficult to say, but they've been around for a long time, haven't they? Where does plastic sweet corn and the like fit into all of this? It is a difficult thing, isn't it? I know the first time it came out when I was given it, it's a very difficult thing to put it on feed the natural corn and have plastic corn on Europe and as an angler that's done that and I must admit I had caught on a few plastic things but I still struggle personally sitting behind a float or an alarm or whatever knowing that the thing on the end is plastic will it catch the fish or not personally I struggle to do it but I know people that are totally confident in it and it does look very good but I personally struggle with it but I do know people who do regularly catch on Especially like plastic bread. Some of the bread they produce now, there's a floats on the surface that the fish must see in silhouette anyway from underneath. It must look fairly dark when they look at it. I think it's pretty effective, that. So have natural baits such as hemp, maggots and the like had the day? Well, I don't think hemp's had its day. Hemp, if you look closely at some of the, the ground baits, almost all ground baits have hemp in. We certainly don't 
sell as much loose hemp as we've ever done before for, for many reasons. One, the hemp's got quite expensive now. It's very difficult to get the bigger hemp that used to be seen to be available. I don't know why that is. Maybe there's some sort of world shortage. I don't really know. But hemp's in many, many different things. So it's still, it's still there, even if it's disguised in, you know, red ground base and things. Buying it loose is a thing that's not done quite as much as those. I don't really sell a bit of it, but nothing like we used to do. Because there's such a variety of other baits to use. So, I don't know, I don't think they're dead. They're certainly not sold in the same quantities as they used to be, but I don't think they've disappeared from angling yet. It's a trend, isn't it, they go, who's to say in the future, we won't go back to selling more and more maggots. I, I, I don't know the answers to that one. Now I've asked this next question to a number of people on the freshwater scene and I make no excuse for repeating it here, particularly with you being a tackle dealer and therefore able to offer a different perspective based purely on retail popularity. It concerns a suggestion made in the press that if you want to catch a British record for most coarse fish species these days or a specimen representative of that record, you now need to fish high protein baits. It also claimed that as most users of these baits tend to fish them on self-hooking bolt rigs, not only was the art of fishing other baits being lost as a result, but also the old and arguably more skillful techniques that went with them, and that a good proportion of coarse anglers were developing into unskilled specimen hunters with a high threshold of boredom, willing to wait for as long as it takes just to catch that one special fish. So based on your retail experiences, what would your take be on that? You try to lead me down a road where I can commit suicide in the tackle trade here. But um, I'll give you my, because I've been in this too long now to address it up, but I'll give you my view of it. Using bolt rigs and, and, and air rigs and things was a thing that was poo-pooed by a lot of uh, very quality anglers when it first came out. There's no doubt now that air rigs catch more fish than any other method in the UK, I would think, freshwater-wise. It's a great method, use it yourself regularly. It seems to be a way of deceiving the fish. I don't have any... Uh, problems with that i'm not really in love with bolt fishing and being too far away from the gear certainly there is some angling skill lost in using methods that are almost self-hooking you know why go you might as well tie the line to a tree mightn't you but uh, that's just my opinion if you're somewhere for a long period of time and you happen to have gone for a pee or to pick up your cup of tea or something and the fish goes off if it's your only run for a week you want to make sure you catch it so i can see both sides of the argument there what about ancillary equipment? Some fishing trips these days look very much like camping holidays, so that part of the market must also be important to the tackle trade. Without doubt. You and me go tonight, and it's raining, it's horrible here at the minute. Raining, it's windy. We go tonight, you go with your brother, and I'll go with my bivvy. I'll lay a 20 quid bet that within half an hour you'll be sitting in my bivvy. And no matter how hard you are, being comfortable when you're fishing is an important part of it, especially if you're going to be there for a, for a while. If you for two or three days, you definitely want to be comfortable. So yeah, they're an inevitable part of angling for the future. I see more and more beach anglers now taking shelters and as they become much more affordable. Yeah, they're a definite plus for me. And the rest of the stuff, the unhooking mats and weighing slings, are they also good established trends? Well, I think so, yeah. I think that we should encourage people to use unhooking mats rather than keep damaging fish by dropping them on stones and things. It makes us, as an angling professional, as an angling society, look like we really are. We do really care for our fish. People that say that anglers drag these fish around the water. I mean, you can't defend dragging a fish around the water until it's nearly dead, landing it and saying that's good for the fish, because it's not. But when we've done that, we do look after the fish. We are keen that it doesn't die, and we revive it and we photograph it. And I think we love the thing that we've caught. 
we want to put it back in the water. So unhooky mats, weighing the fish, it makes you feel comfortable that you know, you've got one 19 pounds, the next one you want to get 20 pounds. It makes a careful attitude for anglers, which has got to be good for the sport, got to be good for its, uh, its overall view by the general public when they look at it to think we're all cruel guys that kill fish. That certainly isn't the case. There's many, many people that love fish as much as they do fishing and want to look after their fish when they've caught them. One of the questions I asked earlier when discussing the sea fishing was what you saw as being the best innovation during your selling career. Can I now ask that same question again, only this time on the freshwater scene? The best innovation for catching fish has got to be bulk rigs, isn't it? No other single thing has ever been responsible for catching more fish. The idea that when I was younger, it was, was you had to have the lightest possible lead so the fish couldn't feel it. Nowadays is that really, truly, the heavier the lead and the fish hooks itself against the lead, it's got to be responsible for putting more fish on the bank than anything else. Of course, the other side of that is what we, we covered earlier, line. The lines nowadays have got finer and clearer and stronger. Some of the match fishing guys, they're using line you can hardly see, but it's so strong. Because they're fishing for big fish, aren't they? They're not fishing for little silverfish anymore. They want to be as, uh, as fine and as soft and as invisible to the fish, but still strong enough to catch big fish. Going back to the angling scene in more general terms again now, by looking at tackle buying trends, is it fair to say that today's newcomers demand instant success in a way that would have been unheard of when both you and I were starting fishing? Nobody, it seems, is either interested or willing to learn the trade by progressing through from small fish or short distance casting anymore. They not only want, but also demand everything on a plate. Well, that's a, a leading question, isn't it? I think, personally, if we don't give people some success by sending them to the waters with the fishing, by giving them direction from quality advice from over the counter... God forbid the day when to sell fishing tackle on a big scale, which they, they certainly do in America and they're looking to do in this country. You're not going to get that advice of where to go, what to do, how to catch it, how to look after it when you caught it from big superstores that you're going to get with the angular trade. So long live the independent retailer from that point of view. I'm bound to take that view, but I really think it's crucial to our sport. Staying the way it is and having the quality anglers with involved in fishing tackle is really important. Final question. Based on the various trends of the past, how do you see fishing, tackle development and the tackle trade itself evolving in the future? Well, that's, a, that's an enormous subject. Like I said before, we've got one or two enormous companies that are getting involved in fishing tackle at the minute. One particular company is claiming that they're going to take 50% of the angling sales in the UK over the next four years. A company that's far bigger than any other company that's ever been involved in fishing tackle. If they do that, you'll have it in massive superstores like you are in America. You'll be able to look at your tackle quite easily, maybe even buy it at considerably reduced costs. Whether it be as good is debatable because it's not all about how cheap it can be. It's about, you know, it's got to be tested and looked after by anglers. Does that mean for the future that we're going to have less of but bigger tackle shops in just urban cities around the UK where the loss of the smaller independent retailer which is I think it's going to happen but my biggest worry with that is if these bigger companies move into not an enormous market really and truly compared to uh, I don't know um, the sports market in general if they move into this market 
is it big enough for them? If they get into it and they decide after four or five years that they're not making enough profit from it and they get out of it, what will we be left with? Will have all your independent retailers jacked it in? Just to make a comparison, I have been for many years uh, an avid badminton player and I play in some reasonable leagues of a, of a certain standard. But if I want to buy a quality badminton racket, I can't buy that from a big superstore. I have to still go to my specialist sports retailer. There aren't many of them around anymore, are there? It was in, in every town there would be one or two sports shops that would sell cricket stuff and badminton stuff and tennis stuff. They've gone. Now, if the independent retailer goes the way of a sports store, I think that's really bad for the sport. You'll have less specialist help. I believe you'll have very much less tackle. It may well be cheaper, but there will well be a lot less of it because they won't carry the same range as an independent retailer would carry. That's the real dangerous part of sport. You could argue it might be better for the sport long term. I don't see it personally. I think that we're in danger of going down this, uh, this American way when bigger necessarily means better. I'm not so sure it does. I think bigger means bigger stores full of other things other than fishing tackle. Nothing like the same choice. Nothing like the same quality over the counter asking the questions that you need to know. What bait do I use for catching bass? What boilie should I use in this particular water? That's going to disappear there if we're not careful. So uh, the future from that point of view is a bit misty there. Hopefully we'll still be here in 20 years' time. My family has certainly got a, a future in this uh, in this business and we're doing our best to uh, develop that with the, I have to say, good service we've offered for the last 30 years and hopefully continue to give good service and good advice for the next 30 years. As regards tackle itself, it'll just keep evolving. It'll keep getting lighter and lighter, more and more choice, more and more innovation. Whether the market's growing or not, I think it shrunk for a while. It, the advent of carp fishing and commercial fisheries have seen many, many more of that type of angler. The shore fishing, I'm unsure about. I'm not so sure whether there are as many shore anglers now as there were. There may be more sea anglers. There's certainly a lot of boat anglers around now as boats have become affordable. The price of fuel has definitely had an influence on those, but there's still quite a number of sea anglers, not so many shore anglers, many of, them, many of them are doing other things. As the fishing gets tougher sometimes, cod have become not exactly, uh, certainly on the west coast, they've almost become a dinosaur in some places, but we've seen many, many, many more fish on other stretches of coasts. So the sea fishing is a difficult one. I don't know where that would be in the future. We'll just have to go there and see, won't we? I don't know what that uh, brings for the future, sea fishing. Game fishing, easy. That's going to go down the road of put-and-take trout fisheries. There's going to be more and more of those. As salmon become less and less on the ground, there's less and less salmon. Certainly when I was a teenager, there was a lot more salmon around than there is now. Does that mean, then, that if any small independent retailers do survive, they'll become little more than last-minute convenience stores for items of terminal tackle and bait? I don't honestly know the answer, Phil. I would suggest that if this ever gets out to listen, by, listen to it by anglers... Support your local independent retailer. Go in, spend your money with him. Get the advice. Don't make him so he only gives you the bait you want and a few swivels. Look after him. He's going to be important for you in the future to give you the right advice of where to go, what to catch. Because the bigger independent retailers, even ourselves as a mail-order retailer, yes, we're competitive, but we're still an independent retailer, still able to give great advice over the phone, 
That will not be the case. A large, multi-purpose retailing outfits that are looking to get into the tackle trade at the minute. The beauty of doing a recording such as this, then putting it to archive, is that long after we're both gone, history will be the judge of what's been said. So let's hope your predictions are wrong, and unlike the US, where the mega multi-stores are very much the norm, the smaller independent retailers do survive. My thanks then to Jerry Foote for being so candid, and for expressing an opinion on quite a diverse and at times difficult range of questions. Mm-hmm.